would we want Jesus or would we want the Holy Spirit? Um, and Jesus says it's better for the Holy Spirit to come. And yet, and our probably my answer, and I don't know that it differs from yours or not, perhaps it does, but I'm thinking in my head when I first heard that question, it's like, yeah, of course I want to see, I want to, Jesus would be better. I can see him. Uh, you can't see the spirit. Uh, how could that be better? And yet Jesus is really clear on that. And so one of the things that's been helpful for me is to go back and look at these, look at these aspects of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and to reaffirm what Jesus is saying. Yeah, it is indeed better. Um, and hopefully today, the last, last week we looked at the person of the Holy Spirit. So hopefully today by looking at the work of the Holy Spirit, that the, the answer to that question, perhaps that you gave last time, that I gave last time, may change a little bit too. That we'll see the Holy Spirit for who he is and for what he's done and for what he's doing in our lives, which is super important and hopefully encouraging uh, to you uh, in that as well. So with that, let me pray and then we'll... Um, We'll, uh, we'll get into this, okay? Lord, thank you so much uh, for the day. Thank you for the, the opportunity that we have to come together, even in this, uh, this digital fashion and way, but God, that you've made this way possible, um, that you have, um, in your sovereignty and goodness, uh, allowed this particular event to happen at this moment in time, or that's not by accident, or that you are sovereign in control of all those things. And it happened in a time in history where we have immense access to technology and all these things that you've supplied for, uh, for good, even though people at times use them for bad. But Lord, we pray and we thank you that in your common grace that we can use them for good. And so Father, I pray that um, I would be careful what I say today uh, and that it would be biblical what I say today, Lord, that it would be honoring to the Holy Spirit and what he's done for us and what he's doing for us at this very moment. And so we pray these things um, and I ask them in the name of Christ. Amen. So one of the things I want to do is just brief overview, like where we're headed today. Um, so one of the things that's I think is important is to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And while there, there's not a new way of salvation <laughs> from Old Testament to New Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit is working, and we're gonna see how hopefully that, that kind of pans out. There, there is though this, this distinction of how he's working in the, in the Old Testament and how what happened at Pentecost and how he's, he's working today as well. So one of the things we wanna look at is the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Notice, notice I said distinction. So I made that hopefully clear last time, difference between separation and distinction. And then to, to look at really briefly um, this, how the Spirit does work. Um, so I've listed seven things uh, on that. So he gives life, he purifies, he empowers, uh, he prays for us, um, he gives us assurance. And I know sometimes in believers' lives, I'm the same way. I mean, I always feel uh, that assurance, but we have to be careful about going off with our feelings and that, but he gives assurance. Number six, that he inspires Scripture. So we wouldn't have scripture itself, but not the Holy Spirit. And from that, he also teaches as well. So all those things we'll look at, sort of a, kind of a quick, quick look at, at, at those things. And then in connection to that, how the Holy Spirit is active in the life of the church. So this is where the fruit of the Spirit comes in, the gifting of the Spirit comes in. And it's not just for ourselves, it's for 
this body uh, that um, in particular that we call UBC. Uh, and then the last part is probably the two most, I don't know if controversial, but perhaps misunderstood statements uh, in the New Testament when it comes to the description of the work of the Holy Spirit that, that's described as the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being filled in with the Spirit. And obviously we can kind of run in all, all kinds of ways um, from that. Like, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Jesus said uh, in, in the gospel. So we might be able to take a look at that too. So that's kind of where we're headed um, uh, in that. So that's what I like for, to, I would like for us to pick up today in the study. So once again, I'll be going through some scriptures as well. I've listed that on the handout, so you can go back and you'd want to go back and look at those, <clears throat> look at those later as well. So ironically, there's probably, and I don't think this is hyperbole to say, there's probably been more books like written in the last 50 years over the person and the work of the Holy Spirit than maybe in all of church history. Um, and I don't think that's being hyperbolic to say that. And yet, ironically, I don't think there's any more confusion that even surrounds us even more so today than, than it does right now. So we have all these books, we have all these writings, and yet we're, we're still, a lot of cases, people are confused, right? And I think that systemic, once again, I'm going back to that question that Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson asked, like, how could, how could it be best that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus would leave and the Holy Spirit would come? How could that be better? And that me that question may, and the answer to that question may reveal a part of our own confusion um, about the Holy Spirit as well. So a major point of confusion, I think, happens um, with the Holy Spirit concerning the differences between his activity in the Old and the New Testament as well, okay? So for, it, for example, in the Old Testament, God promises to give his people his spirit. Now, we, Prince, we can actually trace this all the way back to, which is a really interesting point in Old Testament history, back to the book of Numbers, where, where Moses actually praised this. If you recall, he's weary, the people are complaining, um, and that God empowers 70 people, 70 of these elders, to his spirits poured out upon them. Joshua seems to kind of take um, a defense up for Moses. <laughs> And Moses kind of rebukes him a little bit. And Moses says in this, essentially this prayer, you know, are, you, are you jealous for me, Joshua? I wish that God would pour out his spirit on all of his people. And with that, with that prayer, you see that show up later as a prophecy in the book of Joel as well. That this prophecy is that the spirit will come, he will pour out, the Lord will pour out his spirit on all of his people. And indeed, we, we see that, right, at Pentecost. And that's a really important part in church history as well. Well, even in Ezekiel, right, Ezekiel 36, 27, says that I, God, will, will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So this is a, this is a great promise, right? And it's, once again, fulfilled in the New Testament when we see that this, with the new covenant uh, we have in Christ. Uh, but this question comes up, right? So what does it mean uh, then that those believers in the Old Testament did not have, does that mean they didn't have the spirit within them? Like how is the spirit working here? And I think maybe to answer that question, um, it's helpful to see that God's spirit was active, obviously prior to Pentecost, right? So God's, for example, God's spirit is frequently shown to be empowering people for special services. 
Uh, and we don't actually need to look any further than see how the power of the earth, how the spirit empowers certain offices in the Old Testament. So if you recall a few weeks ago, um, Colton talked about when we were around the topic of Christology, that there are three offices in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, and that Christ fully and completely fulfilled those, fulfilled those offices in the uttermost sense. Those are mediatorial offices, right? They're mediaries. Uh, and, but those offices that we see have special empowerment to them as well. So not just prophet, priest, and king, but we see um, judges that are involved in this. So Gideon, uh, Samson, they were to deliver Israel from the oppressors. Uh, there are other skills in the Old Testament that were given by the Holy Spirit to God's people as well. So, for example, the ability to construct the tabernacle. This is Exodus 31. And we also see the Spirit of God in men such as uh, Joshua and in David and Daniel. So these texts show how in this really unique way that the Spirit is um, using men and empowering them, especially in these offices as well. Right, so it's one of the kind of the differences that we begin to see, and yet the the Old Testament may not frequently speak of people who had the Spirit of God, but there are once again examples that show us that the Spirit was working among His people. So whatever God's promises or uh, promise is in Ezekiel, uh, when He says uh, when He says this and promises this about the Spirit will be within you. Uh, it's not saying that there was no activity, obviously, of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament times. There most certainly was, right? So we see that in these specific offices as well. And yet with that said, this, this new promise seems to suggest that there will be a more powerful and, and fuller work of the Holy Spirit that will begin to be characterized in this new covenant, right? This new covenant age that we see happening in the, in the New Testament. And friends, this seems to be what Peter is testifying to uh, in his sermon at Pentecost when he quotes this passage, uh, once again, from the, from the Old Testament prophet of Joel. So once again, just kind of trace that lineage, right, of this idea that, this, that the Lord will pour out his spirit. It starts with Moses and his prayer, right, in, in Numbers. It picks up with Joel, right, this, this prophecy. Ezekiel talks about this prophecy as well. And then Peter cites this in his sermon. Uh, this is Acts chapter 2, 17 and 19. So he says this. So he's, Peter's quoting the, the prophet Joel here. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my, on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. So just as a really huge overview of that, we see that the Holy Spirit was at work, obviously, in the lives of God's people uh, in both Old and New Testaments. But there seems to be some of this, seems to be sort of a greater manifestation of his power um, when it comes to when it comes upon the, the death and resurrection of, of Christ himself, showing that God was especially at work um, during this time. So once again, there's not 
for example, there's not two ways of salvation. People weren't saved one way in the Old Testament and in another way in the New Testament. It's clear to see that we're justified by faith alone, that we are regenerated, we are reborn by the Spirit. The same, that same thing happened in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. And yet the working of the Spirit seems to be different from the Old Testament and how it was up to the point of Pentecost. We'll take a bit more look at that um, as well. Okay. So as we get into this handout, what is this, as we move forward, like what is this work that we see that's, that's in, in the lives of believers? Like how does this work? What is he doing? So once again, I kept coming back to that statement and that question from last week um, when Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson pressed me on that, hopefully I pressed you on that, that kind of thought experiment. And it does, I think, reveal in my own heart um, my neglect at times to honor, to praise, to meditate on what the Holy Spirit, once again, has done in my life, your life, and what he's, what he's doing right now. At this very moment, that he's sanctifying us. He's making us more into the image of Christ. Once again, you wouldn't be a Christian if it were not for the Holy Spirit. Um, nor would you want to maintain being one, right? So this is the ongoing work of sanctification that we see. So seven, sort of seven observations um, in this. And at one point I'll stop and we'll take some questions and I'll get Terry to answer some of those questions for us. <laughs> this is some observations of how the spirit is at work. What's he, what's he done? What's, what's he, what is he doing in that? So if you look on that handout, um, how the Holy Spirit, and there's a number of areas in this, and some of it we'll spend a little bit more time on uh, in this. So one of the ways that we see that the Holy Spirit works um, is that he gives life. Now, not only does he give life, but friends, he also sustains life as well. Okay. So Last week, I mentioned, like, what's one of the first instances that we see the work of the Holy Spirit? And we go all, actually all the way back to Genesis as well, where the Spirit is hovering, right? He's giving order uh, out of, over this chaos. But he's also used here as this idea of the breath of God, right? That he, God breathes into man. He gives, gives life, right? So we see this in creation. So Psalm 104, for instance, um, the psalmist says that when you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. So the spirit gives life, and he also sustains. Right? If it, if, this is uh, Job thirty-four. If um, if it were his intention, and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all mankind would perish, and men would return to the dust. So I always go back. Some of my favorite chapters in the New Testament is Acts seventeen. I've referenced it several times, where Paul quotes to the Athenians, one of their Greek poets, Epimenides, um, back to them. And it's a pagan poet, but Paul's pointing back to them that what they're worshiping in ignorance is actually, um, he's revealing to them that um, they need to be reconciled to God through the resurrection of Christ. And he quotes Epimenides back to them. He says, in him, in God, we live, we move, we have our being. Um, that idea of sustaining being that we have, that we are secondary, essentially secondary causes out of a primary cause. And that primary cause is God, that he sustains all things, that he holds all things together. And obviously this is 
this is attributed to the ongoing work of Christ himself as well. But the spirit here, not just once again, gives life, but it's the sustaining work of him uh, of, uh, that sustains our lives as well, which is quite it's remarkable to keep thinking of that, that you and I are sustained by this. So that not just happens in the physical world, but most certainly that happens in the spiritual world as well. And we, t- we talk this idea of regeneration or rebirth, right? So I mentioned this, the reason that you and I are believers, that we're Christians, is the work of the Spirit in our lives. And how much we want to, sometimes people want to attribute that. Nonetheless, this is what's clear in the scriptures. And we're the kind of classic text of that that we see is once again, Jesus's explanation of this, right? So just as the Spirit's role is to give physical life in all the creation, so it's his role to give spiritual life as well. So Jesus, for example, it's really important text that all of you know very, very well, right? So Jesus tells Nicodemus that, Nicodemus, you must be born again, right? By the Spirit. This is John 3, 6 through 7. And he tells, Jesus tells his disciples, right, that the Spirit is the one who is the one who gives life, right? So you've heard this analogy before, right? So just as we did not create our bodies, we don't make ourselves. We didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose where we live, the time frame that we lived. We didn't choose to be during, born during this time when the coronavirus is, is thriving, right? We can't make ourselves, just like we can't make ourselves at birth, we can't make ourselves alive in Christ. We know that because Paul's really clear on that, like in in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. So neither can we make ourselves new creations. So we can't give ourselves the gift of saving faith. I know in some sects of Christianity, that's a controversial even statement to say, right? Paul's really clear on that. We can't give ourselves the gift of saving faith. That's a gift. Uh, That's a gift from God, that we can't give ourselves this new birth, and that obviously that new birth is necessary in order for us to truly repent and trust and believe in Christ. So in other words, we can't add anything to the Spirit's work in this area. It's wholly a work of God's grace. Um, And if it's not, then we have to redefine what we mean by grace, right? And we want to define it the way the scriptures define it, the way Paul is getting at here, right? And from that, friends, this is why it's so difficult sometimes, because especially in systematic theology, you think, okay, it's, it's difficult because it can turn into this intellectual experiment or this intellectual intellectualization of of the text or the scriptures or what's being said here. But Paul, who's classic of this, right? There's no one probably more learned in the New Testament uh, in the ancient uh, Greek or Roman world than Paul was. Paul uses these sophisticated arguments, and we're going to see some of those today that he's going to use when he talks about the work of the Spirit. And yet Paul, in the middle of these passages where he is the most logical, he will stop and he will praise God for what he's done. So good, doc, good doctrine, which is what Paul is after here, guard your life and your work, right? Guard your doctrine is always encompassing or in connection with good um, orthopraxy, praise as well. And we can't pull those things apart. And perhaps I mentioned those 
last 50 years, we've seen all these books written about the Holy Spirit, and yet it's confusing. And one of the parts I think, and the reason for that is, historically in the last 50 years, we've tried to separate those things out. Doctrine and the work over here becomes um, emotionally driven, right? And Paul's connecting those two things together for us, right? So before we can be emotionally driven, we have to have good doctrine to know that. So yeah, you can have great doctrine and be, and be cold and sterile. And that's not anything that we see in the New Testament. Paul's kind of the opposite of that. He pulls those things together. Um, and it is. It's, it's, it's a moment to stop and give praise to God for what he's done in my life, um, what he's done in your life as well as the believer. And friend, if you don't know that, if you don't know what it means to know this Holy Spirit to know Christ savingly. Um, so let me press that point really quick that in order to be a Christian, you have to be born again. And if you have not done that, if you've not repented and turned from your sin, I implore you to do that. Um, the scriptures <laughs> implore you to do that. Um, and we know that the spirit, that the people that will do that, that the spirit is at work um, in your life to do that and in my life uh, to do that as well. So um, he gives life, right? He gives it both in creation. He gives it both in, in the spiritual life as well. Number two, uh, he, the Holy Spirit is at work as the one who purifies as well. So how does that work? Well, he, he's cleansing, notice the present tense here, he's cleansing us from sin. So when someone becomes a Christian, the Spirit uh, does an initial cleansing work in that person's life, making this sort of break and pattern of sin, as it were, in the life before. So Paul describes this as being a slave to sin. Are we slaves to sin or are we slaves to Christ? We're slaves either way. We're slaves to our own desires for sin or we're slaves in our desires for Christ. Right? So we've already seen that and Jesus explains to Nicodemus that we must be born again. And he explained that we must be born of water and the spirit. And sort of using, I know people have interpreted that idea of the water part of it in different ways, but kind of using this imagery of water, Jesus appears to be referring back once again to the Old Testament prophecy in Ezekiel, right? To describe how the spirit of God is to cleanse us from our sin in this way. And then even later on in the New Testament, Paul explains more fully in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is verse 11. And he says that, um, and that is what some of you were. You were washed. Notice these, these past tense verbs here. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds this phrase, by the Spirit, right? By the Spirit of our God. So question really quick here, just kind of think through this. So obviously in the life of a believer, we've kind of see it in three parts in the scriptures, right? We're justified, right? We were generated, we're justified. We're, we're in the process of sanctification, being made more into the image of Christ. And that will keep going until the day we die. And then from that glorification, right? But friends, notice here, Paul says that we were washed. We were sanctified. That's past tense. And yet, we're told in the scriptures as well that this is an ongoing work. Like right now, we're being sanctified, right? So how can it be past tense 
and yet it's present tense. <laughs> well, I think that's a, if, you're, if you've ever thought about that, I think that's a good kind of thing to, to question and or, or to ponder here a little bit. And in, and in some ways, I think a good answer to that question in, in one sense is that sanctification, this, this process, this ongoing active process of the spirit to make us more and more to the image of Christ is kind of that, that kind of sort of already not yet scenario, right? Um, that we are sanctified positionally in Christ, that we don't, this is what the full work of this, of what Christ has done. And yet we are, we are being progressively sanctified in our own experience as we move through this life, right? So I think that may be a good way to kind of think of it in that way, that we are, once again, sanctified positionally, once and for all. And yet there is this progression that we're making in our lives. And so our Christian life is not one, if you, if you um, map this out, it's not one of, right? Not, the, the, the arrow doesn't always go straight up, uh, but yet your life may be more, it's like, that but the trajectory is going up it should be going up right should be we should be make being made more and more into the image of of christ as well and so i think this is what paul's getting at with with the corinthian church uh b how does how else does he um how else does he um purify and that is through the fruit of the spirit notice i didn't say fruits of the spirit but the fruit of the spirit right so Though the sanctification of the Holy Spirit brings about in believers, this is the definitive once-for-all aspect um, of, of uh, bringing, uh, making us into Christians, yet, yet we still, once again, grow over time, right, as we repent of sin. So a good kind of definition of a Christian, and I know that term is very loosely used, even our, especially our culture today, but it, maybe a good definition is that we are repenting sinners. That's this ongoing work of the Spirit, right, that we are convicted and we repent. So God's Spirit brings forth the fruit of that in our lives, of those of us who've been regenerated and who are being sanctified. A great place to look at this is um, Paul's letter to the Galatians, right? So Galatians chapter 5, where Paul says, this is verses 22 and 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, goodness, long-suffering, um, or faithfulness, uh, gentleness, self-control. By the way, if you go back a couple of verses, Paul tells, so this is the good fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit's work. And yet if you go back a couple of verses, Paul tells you what kind of rotten fruit that we can have as well. I don't know if you thought about good fruit, rotten fruit. Good fruit is of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Here's rotten fruit that Paul says. So this is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. This is the preceding um, verses to that. Here's rotten fruit. Now the work of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, and this is a scary passage, right? Who do such things, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> so what, what do we do with something like that, right? So we've all perhaps fit into one of those categories at times. 
And at, uh, oftentimes, at least I'm speaking for my life, we don't, I don't always exhibit this, this good fruit. I've experienced sometimes rotten fruit as well. Well, I think in that, Paul's saying that, yeah, if you've gotten drunk in your life, this, this is not that you're not going to inherit the kingdom, right? However, if this is an ongoing, if this is how you are represented, this is an ongoing thing in your life, that's a pause, and it's a, it's a flag of great concern. And Paul says what needs, to be, what needs to be magnified and exemplary in our lives is the fruit of the good, the good fruit of the Spirit. All these things that should be, should be ongoing in our lives, right? So this Spirit-filled life and one in which the Holy Spirit's at work is the one that's producing this fruit in our lives. It's the work of God in our lives that reflects his character, um, and he's once again seeking to purify us in this way. And yet, um, recognize this, while it's our duty, right? It's our duty to love. It's our responsibility to be joyful. It's an obligation that we have to be peacemakers, to be peaceful, right? So the Spirit dwells in us and works and empowers us to, to live up to and to live out these responsibilities. And I think this is in a great way what it means to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, that we walk out, that we live out these things in our lives. And obviously there are days when I am not very loving, and I suspect it may hit you as well. And yet in those moments, are you... Are you being convicted by the Spirit? I had, a, I had an event happen this week where I had an interchange with uh, someone online or via email. And he thought I was wrong. I thought he was wrong. And I was digging my heels in pretty, pretty heavy. And I was being a bit snarky in a very passive aggressive way in these emails. Um, and I realized that at one point I had gotten another piece of information and I realized that other piece of, piece of information I got was it revealed that I was totally wrong. <laughs> and I did, not want to re, I did not want to send back this email saying to this guy, uh, I'm wrong. <laughs> You're right, I'm wrong. I did not want to love. I emotionally had, had no joy. I was hacked. I was, I was mad. I had no patience. I had absolutely zero kindness. Um, and I was experiencing very little self-control at this moment. And yet I was totally convicted that I was in the wrong and I had to make amends to this. And so I sent a brief email back and said to him, you know, you're right. I'm, I'm wrong. And I, I, I want to apologize for that, for my misunderstanding and my, um, and my um, lack of kindness here. And he sent back an email. Both of our emails are a bit snippy back and forth. And after I did that, I felt better. <laughs> but he sent back an email too. And the rancor the, the, uh, and tone of that email that he sent back was totally diffused as well. Friends, the work of the Spirit is this ongoing thing. That's a daily moment, sometimes moment by moment battle in our lives that he's producing the Spirit as well. Which leads us to the other part of this is the, the issue I spoke of, the issue of conviction, right? Um, so if anyone's here that's honest, hopefully, we know that as Christians, as believers, that we're not always, once again, as I mentioned, loving, joyful, patient, kind, uh, and that we veer off this path of righteousness, right? We don't always walk in the Spirit, and yet 
the spirit of the God is the one who, once again, brings this conviction. And Jesus says that he will bring this conviction, right? This is John 16, where Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, once again, that when he comes, it's better that Jesus go away and the Holy Spirit comes. Remember that? And Jesus says that one of the reasons is the Holy Spirit comes, and when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is why we can grieve the Holy Spirit. This is Ephesians chapter 4. We can harden our hearts against that conviction. We can, we can sear our consciousness as well in that, right? And that can lead us into a very perilous um, life if we harden our hearts. And that's clearly laid out in the book of Hebrews, right? So I think in Hebrews chapter 3. So that has some pretty important implications to it, right? So one implication is that to remind ourselves the work of the Spirit, that's, that has really important implications in our evangelism. Like, friends, we don't make people into Christians. I heard one person say this once, and I've used this term over and over again. Like, I could hold a knife up to your throat and make you a sufficient Muslim, right? You could do the same for me. I could hold a knife up to your throat and never make you a Christian, ever. Because that's the inward work of the Spirit. So I can make you follow mandates and, and laws, outward things, but never an inward thing, right? So we need to remind ourselves of that in, in our relationships to other Christians and in our relationship to non-Christians as well, right? We don't convict people. We can try to do that, but what oftentimes ends up happening, I found out personally, unfortunately, is that it just becomes a shallow guilt trip uh, that manipulates people's emotions. Um, rather, what we are to do is to speak the truth, right? We tell the gospel, right? The person and the work of Christ, what he's done, how it can be made right with God. And then we pray that this spirit would work, right? And I don't know about you, but if you've ever shared the gospel and you feel like, oh my gosh, I left out this, this, this. I botched this. I should have said this. Why did I say that? I could have said something else. And at the end of the day, um, once again, it's not up to us to make someone a Christian. That's the work of the Spirit. So we pray at that end. And Paul's really clear on that, right? Second Timothy 2, 224, um, about praying and seeing how that prayer and then glorifying God in that prayer comes about, right? And when God works in that person's life, right? So as we respond to the Spirit's conviction, whether it's this first time of becoming a Christian or maybe the 1,000th time of us repenting, right, of what we've done, God is the one who grants this repentance. So once again, 2 Timothy 2, Acts, Acts 5, God is the one who grants the repentance, right? Um, and as we say no to sin, sanctification, as we battle against it and seek to kill it, we find out at the bottom end of it, at the very bottom of it all, um, is the work of the Spirit. It's by the Spirit that we are to put these things to death. This is Romans 8, right? So, so really quick, whose job is this, right? So we're not, we can't take any boasting in our, our um justification, right? And yet, what kind of role do we, do we play any role in our own sanctification? Um, so when we consider topics like this that deal with the way that the Holy Spirit purifies us, that we, 
we may be tempted to think that we have no part in this sanctification, right? That we just kind of sit back and let it happen. One, there's one famous saying that's uh, let go and let God, right? This idea of, of just this passive nature to it. But that's not what we see in the scriptures, right? In this working of the spirit in our lives. And while we are passive in some aspects of us becoming a Christian, such as, once again, regeneration, um, it's not the case it, it, it shows us in the New Testament when it comes to, uh, for us to, to seek to follow Christ, right? So classic point to this is Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is Philippians 2. And Paul says, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, people obviously have misconstrued this passage, right? But Paul says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God. It's God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose, right? If you've ever had problems sort of, or difficulty sort of reconciling God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, I, I think you have to look, you can look no further than this passage. It's a great passage to consider in that. Every time we see Paul describe the sovereignty of God and man's moral responsibility, they're never at odds with one another. They're never at tension or contradiction. They're parallelisms in this sense. They're held side by side in this. And Paul's doing it here as well, right? He says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not in the sense of regeneration, but in the sense of working out um, in your life, becoming more and more like Christ, right? For it is God, how do we do that? Well, it's God is that work in you. And it's doing that according to his good purpose. So whatever tension we think that might be here, we see that God's sovereignty, our responsibility in that, as creatures are completely compatible. So Paul does not explain it. He doesn't explain how it's compatible, but he sees no contradiction in that as well. So think of it this way. As Christians, we are to, we're called to obey. And yet, at times, we don't obey. But we're called to obey, to work, to will, to act. But at the bottom of it, if we're to take Paul at his word here, and hopefully that we do, that we're to know that, that by us doing those things, it's by God's grace that he's done that, because of the Spirit that he's doing that, that he's working these things out in our lives, right? It's that same idea if you apply that to the scriptures. Like if you ask, like, who wrote the book of Romans? Was it Paul? Yeah. Is it the Holy Spirit? Yeah, <laughs> right? It's the Holy Spirit working through him, right? And we, can, we see that him working through our lives as well. So you'll, you'll find that this appears, this, this parallel, right, uh, throughout the scriptures, right? So consider, once again, that new covenant promise found in Ezekiel. I'll pour out my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my commandments or keep my laws as well. So this is part of what we see as the um, sort of this work of purification, the ongoing work of the purification. All right, I want to pause here. I've talked a lot. I'll take a breath. I've got a few more things. I won't spend as much time on, on these because I want to um, sure we finish on time and to give us a little bit of time to think through this last part of baptism, of the Holy Spirit, but any questions? So Terry says, yeah, another great text pointing to this idea, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Yeah. First Corinthians 
15. Friends, if you want to get, and I would just super encourage you to do this, if you really want to get the, kind of the most concentrated teaching of the Holy Spirit, read, and of course it would be written to the church at Corinth, right? Read 1 Corinthians 12 through 15 and 12 through 14, right? That's the concentrated area that you really want to, 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 to think over, to look at. All right. So number three on this on this um, handout is that as the the work of the the spirit at work is the one who empowers. Um, so we see this in Jesus' life, his incarnation, right? Luke one thirty five. The angel said, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you," talking to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Friends, that same idea of overshadowing that verb is that reflected, or that same idea that's reflected over in um, Genesis 1, where the Holy Spirit hovers over, right? Jesus actually picks up, I think, on the same analogy. He talks about as, the, as, as, the, as he broods like a bird over his, uh, over his uh, as, a, as a hen would over her, over her chicks as well. There is this protection and brooding that's happening here. So we have the person... Uh, so Jesus is truly God, truly man. We have the incarnation, the truly man part of Jesus, because of the work of the Spirit, right? So the Holy One to be born is called the Son of God, right? We see this in Jesus' whole ministry, uh, his life in his ministry, right? So Luke 4, one, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. So this is this defining moment. We see all the parts of the, of the Godhead here as well. Um, his miracles, right, point to this. So Nicodemus comes to him. We'll, talk, we'll look at this in a second, right? And he says, good teacher, we know that you're sent from God because of you're doing these things. No one can do that. We're not sent from God. Um, and yet, if you think about it in that same aspect, this is what uh, the Pharisees, this is one of Jesus' warning about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Right? He says, you can say anything you want against me. Be careful. He's talking to the Pharisees here, like right on the precipice of this. This is the scary part, right? Where he says, you can blaspheme me, but you are severely, you are in severe danger here of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So what is that? Well, it's attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan. It's like an awful thing to do, right? If the Spirit is the one that regenerates you, makes you and I Christians, right? Gives this rebirth. Think about that. That Jesus says, there's the warning. Do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You are attributing the work of the Spirit to the work of Satan. And Jesus gives this dire warning in that. So Jesus' whole life is, is showing him to be full of the Spirit and complete in utter sense, and him working that out, right? Well, we, friends, we also see this, um, how the Spirit empowers through spiritual gifts as well, right? So not only does the Spirit empower Jesus' ministry, um, but he also empowers his people. Uh, he gives them gifts, uh, he gives the people of God gifts in building up, not for, not for your sake or my sake, but to build up the church, right? So it's God's people who are united together in Christ, and yet there's this div great diversity that we see amongst all the members as well. It's a beautiful thing to see, right? At UBC, we have all these people, and they have all these different types of, 
of spiritual gifts that they are exhibiting as well. So some people um, are great at teaching. Other people are great at administration. There's all these kinds of, of gifts that the spirit has given and, and how they're used in a, in a combination to, to encourage one another and to grow us more and more into the image of Christ as well. So once again, Paul writes uh, to the church at Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he says, Now to each one of the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To the one there is given the Spirit and the message of wisdom. To another, the knowledge and means of the same Spirit. To another, faith as by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing um, by that one Spirit. And to another, miraculous powers. And to another, prophecy. And to another, distinguishing between, um, distinguishing between Spirits. And to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, interpretation of tongues. Um, and Paul says, all these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he gives them to each one, just as he determines. Right? So when we open up to the book of Acts, we see this, right, in the confirmation of this work of the spirit as the church was being established, right? We see this most clearly. Now, friends, I know you're welcome to ask some question about this. I'm not lingering here, but there's been all kinds of, once again, um, controversies over this. By the way, I take Perry's position on this. Um, all kinds of controversies on these things and how this is described. So if you're welcome to ask questions on that. But, but if nothing else, at the bottom part of that, at the end of it, we, we go back to Paul's words on this, right? That it's the work of one, the one and the same spirit. It's not a divisive spirit. It's to bring unity. And Paul's really hammering that point right? Especially with the part about speaking in tongues at Corinth. It's, it's, it, can, it can cause division. Um, and he uses this really interesting argument about, he said, don't desire just this one gift, right? That would be like taking that idea and applying it to the body. That'd be like everybody wanting to be an eyeball, which would be great. We'd all have 20-20 vision, but we would be deaf and dumb at the same time. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. We don't want to do that. We need all parts to work together in that. So if you go back and read, I would encourage you to go back and read 1 Corinthians 12 and how Paul makes that argument. Because he'll take that argument, he'll reduce it to an absurdity. Like, we don't want just one gift. You want all those gifts working together. But all those gifts come from the Spirit, one Spirit. Uh, he gives as he's determined to give as well. Number four, <clears throat> The Holy Spirit is at work as the one who prays for us. So he makes this intercession for us as well. Romans 8, right, 8.26, so the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. So this is back to that idea that the Holy Spirit is the comforte, the comforter. And the Holy Spirit is not the one who comes at the end of the battle to pat us on the back and wipe away the tears from our eyes. But the Holy Spirit is actually the one who comes and gives us strength during the battle, during these really tough moments in our lives. And sometimes we don't even know what to pray for, but the Spirit does. And he enters, Paul says that <clears throat> the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance to God's will. Right? So I can obviously pray for things that are not in accordance. I can, pray that, I can pray things that may be good, but they may be done out of sinful desire. And yet the Spirit intercedes for us in accordance with God's will, Paul says. And that's a really glorious truth, right? So when we don't know what we should be asking for in our lives as believers, 
Um, we don't know maybe perhaps what we should be petitioning for. Like the elders have a really big responsibility this week. They always have a big responsibility, but they've got an even more important role this week. Like when, when do we start meeting? Like, do we adhere to not forsaking the assembling of the believers? At the same time, we're told we're to respect the, the means of the government, which the God, which God's put in place. Like, What's the balance between those things? And a lot of people are struggling through that. Well, they need wisdom. We should be praying for them, right? They should give, God would give them wisdom, the elders' wisdom, about when's the best time to, to open this up for everybody. And I, I can guarantee you, they don't know the, the right answer to this, right? Because this is a tough one. Um, and yet, in that, we're told, we're promised this by Paul, that the Spirit intercedes for his saints in accordance to God's will. And I think that's something that the elders and all of us should lean into heavily in that, right? Sometimes we pray for things we don't even, or we don't even know what we need, and the Spirit intervenes for us as well. Um, and in those moments, it, at times, He does reveal, right? He reveals that He, uh, of our need for Him, right? This is a really, um, really important part of the work of the Spirit in that. Number five, uh, the Spirit at work is the one who gives assurance, right? So this is back to Romans 8. The Spirit himself testifies that our spirit, with our spirit, that, um, that we are God's children. And in this way, this may be one of the highest forms of, of Christian assurance, right? That the Spirit gives, that gives us assurance, right? And you can have, you and I can have no greater assurance that you or you I are a Christian than on those occasions when the Spirit testifies, right? Um, and so he gives a sort of experiential assurance in our lives as well. And yet, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times I don't maybe feel like a Christian. And you maybe even heard people say that. And that's kind of dangerous grounds to be on, right? So we, we never want to base our determination on these subjective experiences in our lives. That's not what we're told in the scriptures. Uh, on how whether we feel like we have the spirit instead i think what what's a good sort of prescription in the in the scriptures is that the way that um that we can have this assurance as believers is on these objective realities that we have like god's promises in scripture or trusting in the finished work of christ on the cross colton's teaching on that um the evidence of God's work in our life, the, the evidence of this fruit in our lives. Friends, I'd add to this, uh, the other believers' observations about that work in your life as well. So I think one of the important parts of the local church is that um, having other believers look into your life and being honest with you in that. Um, I think that's a pretty important role, and the Spirit is at work, I think, in that too. Uh, a couple more, and then I'll stop and I'll get a question. Uh, six, that as the, this is number six, as the spirit at work is the one who inspires scripture. Okay. Once again, we wouldn't have the whole, we wouldn't have the scriptures if we're not the Holy Spirit. So Paul says this in second Timothy. So we learned this like one of our first classes in systematic theology, the inspiration of, of the, the ins, inspiration of the, of the uh, scriptures. And Paul says that all scripture is God breathed. There's that, there's that word again, right? The, the, the pneuma, right? This breathing out, the exhaling, right? It's God breathe, it's breathe out. 
And we see this several times in scripture that the Holy Spirit, once again, is designated as this breath, the breath of God. And so therefore it shouldn't surprise us, right? That what's behind the inspiration, and I don't mean that in an inspired sense, although it can be inspired, but I mean that in where does it come from, the source of it, and the source of the scriptures is the, is the Holy Spirit as well. Um, and then one last thing is the Holy Spirit, not only have the scriptures, but the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches as well, right? So John 16. Um, but when he, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He'll speak um, his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So even the fact that we're reading the scriptures and understanding it is a work of the spirit. Okay? All right, question. Um, so how should we think through blasphemy of the spirit and apostasy? Um, are they one and the same? Does, does one necessarily precede the other? That's a good question. Um, I think they are connected. I'm totally open, Colton. Anyone else um, want to jump in on this too? I, I will take... Um, take advice and insert, so I'm totally open to that too. I think they are obviously connected with apostasy, where you're this falling away. Um, I, I think a, a, this is where sometimes this gets tied into um, people sometimes worry about whether they've committed apostasy or they've committed this blasphemy, this unpardonable sin, how it's described. Um, and I think if you just, I think you always have to go back and look at the context that this was presented in. And Jesus is, when he was teaching on this, and he's teaching this, and he's telling this to the Pharisees. Friends, they were not loving God. Ironically, they didn't know God. Um, they, they had God in front of them, and they didn't know him or see him. They were blinded by their own sin. Um, and they had hardened their own hearts as Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. And yet they were doing something more than just blaspheming the son. Once again, Jesus said to them that they were blaspheming the spirit. They were hardening their own hearts um, against God by speaking falsely against the spirit. And once again, how does Jesus define that? And he defines that by saying that you are attributing the very work of God through the Holy Spirit to that of Satan. So could you be in danger of blasphemy, being an apostate in that sense? Um, yeah, I think so. However, I think if, I don't know if this is a foolproof answer, but I think if you, if you and I are worried about those things, like I've had people ask me, like, for themselves, they think they've, what if they've committed this sin? They're worried, they're worried about this. They're concerned about this. And I think it may be a good indication of the fact that you are worried about it. It's a good indication that you haven't done that. So maybe they are connected in some way. So Colton says, um, one thing that's important to remember is that committing this sin is a willful, decisive act. That's absolutely right. In other words, if you are just worried, you accidentally done it, you probably have. Yeah, and that's the point. You said it better than I did. The point I'm kind of hammering at too. Um, yeah, this is a willful act that the Pharisees did that we did. And that's an ongoing, like I, I know people in my own life that I love dearly who um, hate the scriptures, who uh, 
who have people have in my life told me that they're going to tell God off when they when they die someday. <laughs> uh, this willful willful hatred and it's scary. Um, and I tell them, you know, that you know, that you're not going to do that. Actually, you're going to do what all of us are going to do. You're going to bow a knee, right? And you're going to confess. But I thought about this song this week, maybe in a bit of relation to this as well, that we're all in some ways in danger of this at one point in our lives before we're Christians. We, we sing this song, All I Have is Christ, and there's this line. It always gets me every time we sing this. It says, as I ran my hell-bound race, that's what the Pharisees were doing, right? As I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, there's that hardening. You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Friends, that's what it means ultimately to be reborn of the Spirit, is that it has taken this heart of stone and he has given me a heart of flesh. So Colton's, I think, absolutely right on that. Um, Jason says, I don't think you have to ever be a professing Christian to blaspheme the spirit. The Pharisees seem to have done that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, we're almost out of time. A couple last things. So the Holy Spirit, this is number four in this handout. The Holy Spirit in the life of the church. So I've already made mention of this a little bit, but how he gives gifts to the to the um, to believers and how that is administered, uh, or I'm sorry, how he gives fruit, right? Um, that we're supposed to to, um, <clears throat> to exhibit all these all these things, and yet um, the Spirit also raises up leaders in the church as well, pastors, elders, deacons. And we're not everyone's not called to be an elder, or is everyone called to be a deacon, right? And I know elder, uh, pastor, those things are interchangeable, and Paul uses them, but the Spirit leads and He raises up people. Um, in the body to do these things, right? And so Paul says in instructing elders in the church at Ephesus, Paul says, keep watch over yourselves, all the flock of, the, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So be shepherds of the church, right? So the Holy Spirit is actively works to strengthen and to unify um, and encourage the New Testament church, right? And he does that through the means of the people that he's raising up to do that, right? So Acts 9, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria, um, enjoyed a time of peace, and it was strengthened and encouraged, once again, by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers. There's not a fancy program that did this. <laughs> this is the work of the Spirit to do that, right? So living in the fear of the Lord. So, friends, I think this is a really good, if, there's, if, there's, if there are good things that are happening at UBC, and there are, super encouraged by that. If we are being led well by those in authority, and we are, for those who teach and govern, super grateful for that. And if we're being encouraged by that growth, I am, I hope that you are. If you're being encouraged by these things, it's a good thing to remind ourselves that these things are happening not because we're smart and, and godly or whatever else you want to fill in the blank with. Maybe, maybe come to the contrary of that at times. It's not because we got a corner on the market on how to do things. It's rather if we take, if we take this passage to what it says, those good things are happening because it's God and his kindness that are happening. This is the work of the Spirit. 
And this should not cause us to boast. It actually should cause us to be thankful and to praise God for what he's done. So if you haven't reached out to someone like one of the elders or one of the people that lead and tell them that you're grateful for them and be thankful for them, that would be a worthwhile thing to do. That would be a work of, that would be an act of walking in the spirit to do that, to be thankful, not to boast their ego, but to encourage them that the Lord through the spirit is working through them. And I think that's kind of an obligation that we have. We should, we should do that as well. Nonetheless, to praise God in that. Okay. Um, now Colton said, Brad's sermon on Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 is a great resource. Thank you, Colton. To help us meditate on how the Lord gifts his church. Yeah, that would be a great thing to go look at for sure. All right. Last thing. I saved the best for last. <laughs> and we're always out of time. Um, so really quick, we've got these two things uh, we see in the New Testament. And this has caused all kinds of perhaps confusion and division. So th these terms of, for example, baptism of the Holy Spirit and the being filled with the Spirit, okay? Um, so we should maybe take some time to, to look at that. So, so first, what do we mean when, the, what does the scriptures mean when it says being baptized with the Spirit, right? And this actually phrase shows up about seven times in the New Testament in this passage. So for example, Luke, in Luke chapter three, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, and the thongs of those sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Or Acts 5, the Lord says, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this last verse shows us that whatever the, whole, whatever the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, it, is certainly, it certainly happened at Pentecost. And the problem comes, and the confusion, I think, comes in this, is that we see a lot of Pentecostal doctrine. So Pentecostals, for example, take these verses, these two verses, and they come up with some interesting positions. So, for example, uh, Pentecostalism argues that baptism in the Holy Spirit is ordinarily an event that follows, that comes after conversion. And that baptism, number two, that baptism in the Holy Spirit is made evidence by speaking in tongues. In other words, there's this disjunct, according to Pentecostalism, that you can be, you can actually be, for them, you can be a believer and not have the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and it sets, once again, which is a really dangerous thing, it sets against the Word, against the Spirit, I think. And you get, you get uh, yourself into a real pickle to do this, right? Um, and if you carry that out, if you carry that idea out of Pentecostalism, where there's a disjunct between conversion and being baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you can actually have like three different types of people, three classes of people. So there are, there are, there are those who are not saved. There are those who are saved but are not baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is like ordinary believers. And then there's this third group, according to Pentecostalism, that those who are those who lead spirit-filled lives and haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then how you know that experientially is that those people will speak in tongues, right? Friends, this is super complicated and it's controversial, I know, but just, just to take us back to the scriptures, right? And I think that's where we always want to land. I, this is not, 
my authority, I have no authority, but let's see what Paul's authority is on this. Friends, this teaching, there's that there's this sort of disjunct between conversion and baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, that conflicts with what Paul's saying. And in particular, what Paul's saying to the Corinthian church. So 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, For we were all baptized in or by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. So as far as Paul's concerned on this, baptism in the Holy Spirit refers to the activity of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the Christian life. When we're given this new spiritual life and regeneration, and we're given a clear break with the power of the love of sin in, of, in our lives. So baptism in the Holy Spirit is, just to be clear, is not some second experience according to Paul, for extra-spiritual people. Um, and besides that, we, we, according to the scriptures, we're, we're never, we never fully arrive while in the body. Right? We'll, we're still being made perfect. Back to that passage in Philippians chapter 3. Right? So, yeah, I know there's a, lot, a whole lot more could be said here, but just on the surface of that, I think that's, a, that's maybe a good thing for us to think about. Go back and look at Paul's argument on that first Corinthians 12 there's not this disjunct right that when you are regenerated you're converted that you are you receive the spirit well the other part of it is being filled with the spirit this last thing so the second phrase once again is used repeatedly in the in the scriptures um, and what does it mean to be being filled with the spirit and this is not to say that there's some sort of uniform experience of the Holy Spirit that's it's sort of equally discernible at times. Rather, there is a, a biblical notion of being filled with the Spirit. And once again, Paul tells us this in Ephesians. Don't get drunk with wine, he says. That's debauchery. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. So fill, being filled with the Holy Spirit uh, often results, it seems in these examples, with increased sanctification, increased power for ministry. And it seems to be, it's usually a result of using the means of grace. So God uses the means of grace for this growth in our lives. So example, walking or being filled with the Spirit, that can happen through prayer, through reading um, your Bible, through assembling together for the preaching of God's Word, which you're getting ready to do, right? So Paul says, for, or an example of this is Acts chapter 4. After they prayed, that's where I'm getting this, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. Right. So it seems, therefore, that it's appropriate to understand being filled with the Spirit as not a sort of a one-time event, but as an event that can and perhaps should occur over and over again in a believer's life. So in Acts, Stephen's life was marked by someone who was full of the Spirit. This is Acts chapter 6. Paul often prayed that the people he ministered to would receive more of the Holy Spirit. This is Ephesians 1.7. So as, as we kind of leave this, so how in the world can a Christian who already has the Spirit, like how, can that, how can that believer be filled more with the Holy Spirit? That's something that may be puzzling for us at times, right? So how can a Christian who has the Spirit, right, and yet have, can have at times more of the Spirit. How can we think about this? So, so maybe think, 
something to think about as we as we leave this and in this. Um, and it's a kind of an odd analogy, but maybe it maybe it works. Analogies always break down at some point, but um, maybe a way to think about that question, like how can we? We've already got the spirit. How can we have more of the spirit? Right? Just to think of this idea of a balloon. Right? So a balloon already has already filled with air. But if we blow, obviously, more air into the balloon, right, the balloon becomes more filled, right, in that sense. So we can be filled um, with the Holy Spirit and at the same time be able to receive much more of him and his sort of transforming power uh, in our lives. And yet, as a reminder, uh, it was only Jesus himself who, to whom the Father gave the Spirit, and he gave it to Jesus without measure. So we see all these things in full display in the person of, of Christ himself, right? And we're even, we're even told that in John 3. So for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God for God. For God gave him, Jesus, the spirit, and he gave it without limit in that way. So those are, I think, some really, really good things to consider when we talk about these terms. Now, I know I've not clarified all of some of these phrases, and I'll be super happy to, if you want to send me an email, uh, Colton's email, my email address is on the handout, so I encourage you to send. I know there's a lot of things I didn't get into. We could have gotten into as well. There's so much here, rich stuff as well. Um, but I, I do want to leave you with this, and if you have a quick question, I'll take one. But I do want to leave you with this. Um, so why is it... Once again, why is it important for us to think about, meditate on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit? Because if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, we can intellectualize this to no end, right? So why is this important as a practical, practically speaking, as how does this work out in your everyday life, moment by moment life, like looking at this, right? So I think at least it has been for me, to go back and look at not just who the Holy Spirit is, but what he does. It's an immense sense of comfort uh, that he's working in my life. Um, and that at the very bottom of it all, he's the one that's leading and directing. Remember what the scripture says, he will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, our lives are full of leaving and forsaking. People in our lives leave and forsake. Our health leaves and forsakes we will never be left to ourselves, right? This is the great promise of the scriptures. We'll never be left to ourselves. This is the great hope that we have, that he will never let us go. So obviously, once again, Paul, who is the classical logician that he is, he will always bring in praise in this, that we praise the Holy Spirit for what he's done. And once again, what he's doing in our lives. Um, I am super thankful for all of you. I'm super thankful for, for this body of believers that the Holy Spirit has allowed my family to be a part of this family. And I know that's a work of the Spirit, not of myself. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this day. Lord, I do thank you for your kindness and your goodness. Lord, that 
it is a good reminder for all of us to know that we were all running a hellbound race and we didn't care. And we did not count the cost. And yet, out of your goodness and kindness, through the Spirit, you have made us alive in Christ. You have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And you have led us to the cross. God, I pray that today. I pray that for Brad, that you would encourage him, help us to be encouragements to him, or as he opens up your word. Um, that the Spirit would work, or that we would be mindful of the Spirit's working in our lives. As Brad preaches this morning, Lord, may we um, <clears throat> be in prayer for our elders this week as they make some, some hard decisions, Lord. Help them to know that the Spirit is praying, interceding for them. Um, and Lord, I pray that um, this time together, or that this study today would be an encouragement, Lord, to the people who joined in. And so I thank you for your kindness and your goodness. And we pray these things, uh, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen.